Good morning. Well, I want to start off this morning just reading a couple of verses, if we can, for our scripture reading. And I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to read uh, starting at verse 17. If you're following along with me, or even if you're not, would you stand as we read God's word this morning? This is the Apostle Paul writing again in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm looking at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then I'm going to drop down uh, to verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, then let him remain with God. If you'll repeat after me a prayer of preparation, all right? By the power. Oh, that was sad. Come on now. By the power. And the blood. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. We command. We're not suggesting. But we command. That any and all evil. Get your thumbs up. All right. Get out of here. From my mind is a quiet place. It's a holy place where only Jesus and us can talk. And our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the privilege of getting to come together. Uh, in these times of COVID, we don't take this for granted. Uh, we pray, Father, for strength, for health. We pray, Father, that we would be a people that is called out that is living and believing and thinking in a way that is more with you than it is with the world. Father, may we be charitable. May we be compassionate. There are so many that are sick across this world today. Uh, we just pray for healing, for strength. We pray for our first responders, for those working in hospitals and are doing the care every day. We pray for their protection. We pray, Father, that uh, you'd be with the scientists that are looking for a cure for this. Lord, we know that you're working your will throughout all these uh, things, and we just trust you. Father, now as we focus on your word this morning, we pray that you would just help us, Lord, to hear what you would have to say to us. May I say only those words which you have given me, and may our hearts be united as one as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat, if you will. All right, we're going to jump back to the beginning of chapter 7. Um, as I was thinking about this this morning, uh, we're, it's kind of a unique topic that you don't hear a whole lot of sermons on as we look at chapter 7. In fact, uh, I've often used chapter 7 in our ministry for marriage. As my wife and I, we do a lot of uh, marital counseling and premarital counseling, and it's a good chapter to jump into, Right? because there's some things that uh, Paul says to those whom are married. However, that really isn't the theme of what Paul's talking about in this chapter. In fact, what he has to say in this chapter is more to those of us who are single than to those of us who are married. When I was in college at uh, Grace University in Omaha, uh, me being me, uh, we had a skit our senior year in which another guy by the name of Merle, he and I were kind of doing this to introduce the missions conference that was coming up the next week. And as we ended that little skit, it just ad-libbed 
thought came to my head because I could see uh, one of my profs, uh, Abe Penner, sitting way in the back where all the professors usually sat. And Abe was an interesting guy, loved him, great teacher, but uh, I knew that he was single and uh, he just was kind of a different guy in the sense of uh, you just had to come to class not sure what, where he was going today, what he was doing, and so I thought this would be a fun opportunity to make him laugh. So as we got done, I said to my friend Merle, who was supposed to be character uh, in the skit, I said, and stay tuned and be with us next week as we have as our guest um, Mr. Abe Penner, professor at Grace University of the New Testament, who will be speaking to us on marriage and the home. Yeah, that's about the response I got back then, too. You know, it was just like, not so much because it wasn't funny, but because people knew that Mr. Penner might be a little sensitive in that area. So I had class with Abe right after chapel, like in five minutes. So I walked into class, and Merle was with me, and we thought that we had been pretty funny. We were really pleased with ourselves, and we sat down, and in walked Mr. Penner, he opened up his big binder. Uh, I think actually that class was on Matthew. And he just started teaching. <clears throat> no acknowledgement of what we had said. Uh, didn't say that was funny or not. He just started teaching. And that's the way the class went. Now I'm really nervous. I am really nervous. I'm thinking, we have offended this man greatly. When are we going to get an opportunity to speak to him about this? Well, the day went on. I'm not sure how long uh, if we went the next day or not, but I was talking to my then-girlfriend, Ione, and uh, we decided that the best thing to do was show up at uh, Abe's house and give me an opportunity to apologize to him if I had offended him. So we knocked on the door, and when he came, he opened the door only about six inches. It was kind of like, yes. <laughs> and he was a, how do I say it? He was a man that uh, his appearance and visage was such that it really humbled you. He, he was, could be kind of stern. And I was just like shaking in my boots. And I was like, uh, Mr. Pinner, I just wanted to take this opportunity to apologize for uh, that little joke I did at chapel today if you did not find that funny. And he just kind of stopped and he was like, joke in chapel? You know, when I said, and he made me repeat the whole thing. And then he just kind of looked at me and goes, ah, yes, and closes the door. <laughs> I was like, okay, I did my best. Uh, but, you know, that awkwardness is somehow, unfortunately, the way that singles get treated all the time in the church, uh, not recognizing the great gifting that that can be in a person's life, nor the commission that God has for people uh, who, who are not married. And there's different situations in which people find themselves unmarried. And Paul is going to dive, deep dive, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians into those very things. In fact, this chapter is 40 verses. And I was talking to Will earlier, our worship leader, and he said that because of that, we could go to 1.30 today. I hope you're ready. Now, uh, we're going to try to get through this, but I am going to be kind of hopscotching all the way through this so that we can get the gist of what the apostle is trying to say. So, how I've divided this up this morning, and I think it makes it a little bit easier to digest, 
is that we're going to look at the different uh, statements, commands, wishes uh, that are made in here, and I think that's an easy one to divide. So the first section is just going to be r rotating around the letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. Let's look at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as I just said, my wife and I, we do a lot of marital counseling. And as far as I know, we have never counseled anyone saying, you know, in order to get to the highest plane of spiritual power, in order for you to show your devotion to Christ, you should not experience physical intimacy as a couple. Separate from one another. That's what pleases God. Now, if you were in our counseling session, and we said that to you if you're married here today, what would be your response? You know, most guys when they're coming into premarital counseling, you know, it's like, Jesus, we want you to come back, but please don't come back before June 12th. <laughs> they, they, you know, you, that's, sometimes in our society, the sexual experience is considered the highest point, the, something that you look forward to, especially as a believer if you're trying to live for Christ. And now, here's this quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul says clearly, now, about the matters with which you wrote to me, this statement is something that Paul has pulled out of the letter that the Corinthian church, some of the leaders, have sent to Paul. Now, Paul has been reacting to the things that the Corinthians have been saying from back in chapter 1, right? Chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 even. Uh, Paul is responding to reports of things that people have been seeing that are happening in this church at Corinth. I personally believe that Paul is sitting in the city of Ephesus as he writes this letter, very concerned with what is happening, um, and now he's going to take on a whole another subject. And what has caused the church of Corinth to come up with this rather amazing statement? And when he says it is good for a man, what you want to understand here, he is saying, they are saying, it is good for a husband not to touch his woman. That's what it means literally, but we've translated it as sexual relations. Not to touch him. It's a euphemistic statement referring to sex. Paul uses euphemisms all the way through these letters, uh, especially in this chapter here, uh, as he tries to delicately put it, this is what you said. Where did this come from? How often? We who call ourselves Christians <clears throat> end up adopting uh, thoughts and theological premises from society more than we do from the true Word of God. <clears throat> Paul is saying the church at Corinth has somehow got a hold of a belief 
that it is better to attain to true spirituality. It would be better for a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, not to have physical relations. That is how you keep yourself from becoming impure. That is how you keep yourself from becoming unacceptable to God. And that's just not true. That's not what the Word of God says. But this is what happens. Uh, from time to time, when I've taught theology classes, I'll run what we, across what we call folk theology. Somebody will say something to me uh, that they sincerely believe. And it's not just individuals. It's whole churches sometimes buy in to folk theology. Somebody will say to me, like, I, I'm doing a funeral for a young child. And somebody invariably will come up to me and say, it's so good now that we've had this service. We know that little so-and-so is an angel in heaven today. Really? Are they? Well, I'll tell you, this is not the time as a pastor you're going to correct their theology. They're grieving. You're not going to come to them and say, well, let's take a look and see what the Word of God really says. But somehow those kind of thoughts get into people's hearts. Well, the only time that Jesus sinned was when he was in the temple. And he crashed over those tables, and he got a whip out, and he was, you know, going after the money changers. He lost his temper there. <clears throat> really? Let's see what the Word of God really says, and let's think about righteous anger. Uh, just over and over again, we run across things that the world seems to buy into uh, about what we believe, and somehow we take that in uncritically without really examining it in the pages of Scripture. And that is what is happening with the church of Corinth here. There was a belief system in this day called Gnosticism in which there was a dualistic understanding of flesh and spirit. And if you really wanted to be close to God, who is spirit, you had to sacrifice that which is flesh, right? So somehow this had snuck in in this church, either through their leadership or just through the way that people talk to one another, that the way to really live out your newfound faith in Christ, and it was a new faith, is for a husband and wife to separate from one another, uh, at least physically, so that you could each individually be closer to God. And Paul's saying, let's just deal with this for a second here in this first part of this chapter. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, he says in verse 2, each man should have, again, another euphemism in the Greek, uh, should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul is just standing this on its ear. And the other thing that's really cool in this section, and he does this throughout this chapter, is Paul is very countercultural here. Uh, in this day and age, no one would have addressed both the man and the woman, right? It was the man who took the woman from her father, and then he had the rights to her, and then in marriage, it was his will that was done. Paul is saying, no, this is a mutuality. You two are on the same plane. There's the husband, there's the wife. Each of you play a role in this, and before God, he has blessed your sexual union. Physical intimacy between the two of you is what marriage can be about and cannot be separated from it. Do it. For the wife does not have authority, the husband does not have authority over their own bodies, the other one does. Do not deprive 
except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Paul's saying a, a common understanding in Judaism where because of a season, a feast days, a festival of booths, the festival of bread, whatever, that men may have decided, you know, during this time, I just want to singularly dedicate myself to God. And it's not that sexual union with my spouse is wrong, but it just removes my focus from God. So for a time, <clears throat> I will do this. And in Judaism, he did not have to ask his wife if this was acceptable. He could do it without any permission. Paul is saying, no, now, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, both of you have to come to an understanding again, except by agreement, and another caveat to this is for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then Paul brings up something that he's going to have as a theme throughout this chapter. The sex drive is huge in life. You know, he's already done this in chapter 6. He's bringing it forward into 7. If you separate without agreement for this quasi-theological reason that we're going to get closer to God, and it just goes on and on and on, you are going to become a victim to your own sex drive. And what's going to happen, and this is what Paul's fear was, is that sexual immorality would come into that relationship. Now, for us today, you know, we would say, well, pornography would be huge. Uh, adultery would be huge. In Paul's day, because they had temple worship with uh, the priestesses and so forth that were available for sexual hire, he was afraid they would go out and make access to that. But then he says there's another aspect, that Satan may come between that husband and wife. So he's really setting up a dual problem. On one hand, you have Satan, and on the other hand, you have your sex drive. And on any given day, a believer in Christ is going to have a tough time handling either of these. But when you mishandle your marriage relationship, you are subjecting both of you to this dual attack. And when they both come together upon the individual or the couple, you basically don't stand a chance. I don't want you to do this. Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Or Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's the first issue that Paul has here. He's taking a specific address from the letter that the Corinthians had written him, and he's saying, this is not of God. This idea of separation physically is not of God. And then he comes into, in verse 6, a wish of his. And I'm saying a wish because he says right away, now as a concession, not a commandment. Paul does this from time to time in his letters, doesn't he? I'm not commanding you to do this or to not do this. I'm telling you, this is just how I see it. I wish that all of you were as I am, right? I wish that all of you were as I am. And what does he mean by that? Uh, he means that I wish that you could be single as I am. Now, most New Testament scholars think that Paul had been married at one time. Possibly his wife had died. Possibly she had left him when he was converted on that Damascus road. You know, uh, a good Jewish woman married to a young uh, rabbi, trained at one of the best rabbinical schools in the land, 
uh, zealous for God, ex- expected or respected in his community. Uh, Paul was really something in his day. But then reports are coming back that this same man had converted to Jesus Christ, the very enemy that the Sanhedrin had identified that he and his followers were worthy of the death on the cross that they received and for stoning or any other way that they could get a hold of them, imprison them, and she may have left him. Whatever the case, since that time, Paul has been single, and he says, this is my wish for you. I'm not commanding this. I'm just saying, I wish that you were as myself. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So here's the problem. In that letter from the Corinthians, they say, it is good. And the Greek word there for good, in this case, kalon, is, is looked at in a way that is saying this is a moral good. As you think of good, there's like three or four different ways to understand good whenever you use that word. The Corinthians had bought into the belief that as you attain to deeper spiritual walk, you have step one, step two, step three, step four. And the highest good there is is when a husband and wife separate themselves from physical intimacy so that they could pursue God. This falls right along in the lines of that Gnostic dualism I was telling you before. They're, they're shedding their skin, in a sense. They're getting rid of the fleshly aspect of their existence, and they're becoming more spiritual. This is the error. This is the heresy that had crept into the church at Corinth. And Paul is saying, oh no, that's not how you should see this. I wish that you were as I am. He might even take that word good and say, I'll apply it to myself. I'm single, but it's not a good of higher plane. It's a linear good. To some, God has called you to marriage, so be married. To some, he has called us to being single, so please be single. These are giftings from God. But he would add, I'm sure if he was there in person, I wish that you could be like I am. And then he's going to go on and explain that. So before he gets too far in that, he is going to jump into this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So there he's using that word good, for it is good for them to remain single. If they can For those who are unmarried, for those who were married but they lost their spouse, stay that way. But if you don't have that gift, and here's where Paul's going with this, the gift of being single is as much a gift of the Spirit as the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of hospitality, the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching. Do you have that gift? Is that where you're going with your life? Has God filled you in such a way that you can use your singleness for the kingdom of God to build up the body, uh, for the Holy Spirit to fill you and use your situation in life just as much, and Paul might even argue, even more than those who are married? That's something you have to know, because if you don't have that gift, what's going to happen? You're going to burn with passion. Now, there's only a couple different church organizations that preach celibacy, especially for their leadership, for their pastors. 
It just doesn't work very well, does it? Because while it was intended to be a good thing, it turned out to be more of a burden than most individuals can handle. And they get that because in the early church, some of the church fathers wrote extensively about this, and they took what Paul's saying here, and they took it out of context, and they put it in a way that made it become normative for those who were church leaders. Um, you know, Augustine comes to mind. Uh, Jerome comes to mind. You know, it's better to you. Uh, singleness is above marriage like heavens to the earth, is one statement that they made. Uh, and this has been a disaster. Now, thankfully, I'm thankful, we're in a church tradition where pastors, they can be married. But that crept into the church without regard for whether the individual was gifted by God for that or not. And Paul says clearly, if this isn't your gift and you're burning with passion, if you can't control yourself physically, then you need to be married. This is obviously not what God is calling you to. I was asked one time to speak at a Nebraska singles conference. And I think they were really hard up before they called me. But they had me come. You know, I'm a pastor of families. I, I deal with families. That's what I do. I, I, I work with uh, kids. I work with uh, the parents. We do everything we can to help in marriage. I hadn't really thought about that much. And so in my clarity for the moment, I was thinking, what would I teach on? Well, let's do this. Let's teach how single people, instead of being married to another person, are really married to God, and God is going to use them. And so Iona and I went to this uh, restaurant where this group was meeting, and uh, we were sitting there and eating the meal, and one of them leaned over to me and introduced herself, and then she said, boy, I'm so glad you're here. I've heard a lot about your teaching I would love to hear what God has laid on your heart. Uh, the last guy we had in here, and she kind of gave one of those, you know, it was so disappointing because all he could talk about is how we're supposed to be married to God. <laughs> and like right away, I've got my Bible out. I'm not eating anymore. I'm going through there and what else can I speak on here? Uh, but, you know, sometimes we do that. We pigeonhole people into a certain way of thought, a certain... Uh, way that they should be, be perceived, and I hadn't really given them the time or the effort to think about how God can use that as a gift. Well, I got through that somehow that night, and uh, they were pretty pleased with themselves, but I, I really challenged myself to think about that. How can we, how can the church support those who are single? You heard uh, Will say earlier today that there's a symposium this afternoon uh, that I think Andrea Gaston is leading on the gospel and singleness. And when we think of that, this should not be like, oh, those poor people can't get married, you know, we've got to find something else for them to do. No, Paul is saying, this is a great thing. These people are so available to God. They are so gifted by God that he is going to use them in an amazing ways. Now, some, they're single because they're in transition. They don't understand if they're supposed to be married or not. Uh, you know, we drum that into people's heads so hard, especially in the church. Uh, the only way to really, you know, be part of the church is to 
be married, to have kids. We have marriage conferences. We have all kinds of ministries to kids. But to be honest, typically our singles ministries is an afterthought. It's put over here. You know, we'd, we, we, we're glad it's there if it exists, but most of the churches I've been involved with, they don't have a whole lot in that realm. And yet, Paul is saying, this is a higher plane. This is a gifting that would allow God to use you. And he's going to go on and argue for that and use you in such a way that he can't use the married couple. Verse 10, he says this, To the married, I give this charge. And again, this is not the wish of Paul. This is the command of Jesus. And he says it very clearly, Not I, but the Lord. So I give you this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, but that if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is a simple little statement that Paul inserts in here to the church at Corinth so that they understand there is a basic premise, a command, a status of marriage that you should understand and take for granted. And it's been true since the creation of Adam and Eve, and it's been true, and it will be true until Christ returns. God hates divorce. He just hates it. Now you're in my realm. You're in my arena. When I deal with marriages, there's nothing I can say more strongly than what Paul is saying here. Do not separate. Do not crack and come apart. The world throws all kinds of temptations in the way of the married couple, but you are not allowed to do that. Paul is going to give an exception to this basic rule in just a second here, but for now, he's quoting Jesus himself, and I could spend time going back into the Gospels, and we could look at how Jesus handles divorce, but we can just take what Paul's saying here as truth. This is a charge that I give to you, not from me, but from Jesus himself, the Lord, the wife should not separate. And if there is a separation, if for some reason two married people who walk with Jesus feel a need to separate, may it be temporary. May it always be with the idea that reconciliation will someday happen. That is the hope. And he just wants to establish that. It's like going into a doctor for tests. I just want to create a baseline. I want to find out where your blood pressure usually is. I want to find out where your blood sugars usually are. That way, if down the road things start getting out of hand, we know how to treat you, what to expect with your particular body situation. In the church, Paul is saying, the Lord's already made this clear. There's no divorce. We don't think this is a good thing. Jesus commanded against it. Now, jump to verse 12. He says, to the rest, I say this. And notice what, how he caveats that. I, not the Lord. Again, Paul is moving out of the realm of a direct command from Scripture, from, from Jesus himself, to his own feelings about this. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman... Again, countercultural again, Paul is switching to the woman's side of it. As a husband who is an unbeliever, and if he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Obviously, something was happening in the church of Corinth where as people came to Christ, they were looking at their marital situation, and they were believing 
that if the other person wasn't saved, they didn't need to stay in that marriage. In fact, because of what Paul already talked about in the earlier part of the chapter, if the highest plane of spiritual power was separation of the physical relationship between a married man and woman, how much more should I, as a person married to a non-Christian, be willing to pull away from that relationship? God wouldn't want me to be married to that person. We can't honor God in our house, whether it's a man or a woman. And Paul is saying, hold on. I understand why you might be thinking that, but that is not the truth. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What a strange statement. What does Paul mean by this? It is my belief that he's talking about a covenantal relationship. Just like in the Old Testament, if you are a woman and you are in a relationship, the way it worked is that you would get the covenant benefits of being married to another faithful person. His provision and so forth. Those same terms are looked at in the New Testament. When we marry one another, we are entering into a covenantal relationship, right? If we do that, when two believers come together, the expression of God, the provision of God, the blessings of God. Now, what was happening here was somewhat unique because in most of the New Testament up to this point, people were converting to Christ. It was Jewish people converting to part of the covenant family, right? They had already been circumcised, the males had. They already understood because they had been raised in synagogue schools. with God. But now Gentiles were becoming believers. And as I accept Christ and as I learn the truths of what he wants of me, what Jesus wants of me, as I go to church, I discover that being married to my non-Christian husband is a problem. And so the understandable desire was for some of these people to separate. In fact, it's leadership was counseling their people to separate, to leave that person. And Paul comes back in and says, no! Okay, I just said to you in a few verses before this, not I, but the Lord. Do not separate. God does not like divorce. He didn't change his mind because of your unique circumstances, at least unique in that day. Stay there. Was it mean to be sanctified? Well, he's not referring to No such thing as passive salvation. Uh, when he says they are made holy, he's not saying that an unbelieving husband all of a sudden gets a ticket to heaven because he's married to a believing wife or vice versa. What he is saying is there are real benefits for that relationship if they stay married. Throughout the years, just like you, I'm sure, we've known many who are in what's called the unequal yoking, where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. And yes, it can be very difficult at times. How much better is it, it seems like, 
if both are in agreement of how their children should be raised, if they're living by the same ethical norms in their home, if the Word of God and the, and the person of Jesus Christ is honored in everything that they do as a married couple. But that's not always the case, is it? It's difficult. And he says, rather than becoming single, if you're already married and you're in this relationship, I would say stay in it because there are real benefits to the unbelieving husband to the children. Now, in Roman days, it was easy to get married or divorced. Uh, arranged marriages were the norm. People could just come together. Uh, there wasn't any really religious festival or rites. There wasn't much of a legal transaction. It was just that we feel in our family that you would be a good match for that person in your family, and we're going to create a marriage. They would move in together. Bam, you're married. There may be a little ceremony, but it wasn't necessary. And the same was true with divorce and a Roman marriage. If we felt like we didn't want to be with each other anymore, we just leave. There wasn't anything we had to go through. We didn't have to file papers. The government didn't have to know about it. We just left. And in the wealthier families in, in Roman times, uh, those kind of divorces were very common. We're just going to leave. Uh, and the kids always stayed with the father because that's where their inheritance came from. That's where their wealth came from. And so that's the way things worked. And once again, probably the Corinthian church is imitating more of the world that they lived in rather than what the Word of God is saying. But there are real benefits, Paul is saying, for the unbelieving spouse to stay in a relationship with the believing spouse and even for those children. And the reason I know that this is not salvation is because as we keep reading there, if the unbeliever's partner separates, let him be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Then he says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That partner, that believer that's in an unequally yoked relationship with a non-believing spouse, you're undoubtedly going to be the best, most uh, vibrant way of that unbelieving spouse to hear the gospel. Well, he doesn't listen to me. She won't listen to me. It doesn't matter. That's what Paul would say. Stay there. Now, he is making that exceptional phrase. If that unbelieving person, not the believer, but if the unbeliever wants to walk away from the relationship, let them go. You're not commanded to stay in that situation, but don't initiate it yourself. So Paul is just walking through the situations that the church at Corinth was dealing with. Let's look at another one, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And notice this time, Paul is not saying this is of the Lord. He's saying this is my rule in all the churches, basically, that he's planted. So, let each person lead the life. This is the theme verse. That's why I read it in our scripture reading for this whole chapter. Let each person lead the life to which God has called him. What has God called you to today? Are you married? Are you single? Are you widowed? Are you divorced? Do you have that gifting? God may have put you in a situation, and you, Paul says, 
should lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or to her into which God has called you. This is my rule. Was anyone at the time of this call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. And I'm not going to go into any details on this, but how in the world does that happen? I think Paul is using a little bit of hyperbole here just to strengthen his argument. He's going to give us two examples, circumcision and slavery, as statuses in life. If you find yourself circumcised, stay that way. If you find yourself uncircumcised, stay that way. If you find yourself to be in slavery, if you're bound in a situation, stay that way. If you find yourself free, stay that way. He's just trying to say that God is sovereign. What a comfort. How that should give us peace as believers. God is sovereign. Have you been in situations in your life that you just felt were untenable? I can't stand it. This is too much. If God just knew what I was going through, he would free me from this situation. And Paul is saying, trust God. In fact, the very thing you hate the most may be where God has called you. And that's not easy to hear. And I'm sure some of you will come up and tell me afterwards some tr truly horrific situations. And we as a church want to make sure that we're sensitive to those things. You know, I would not counsel a woman to stay in a relationship where she's being hurt, beaten, neglected in that sense. But shy of that, God is saying, stay where you're at. You don't like your job? Maybe God has called you there. Don't like the neighborhood you live in? Maybe God has called you there. Who knows? But Paul is saying, whatever status you find yourself in life, remain in it. And his real focus here is on the married and the single. That's what he's trying to get across. It's in that human relationship arena. Don't sit there if you're single and saying, oh, life would be so much better if I was just married. And some married people are like, oh man, what was I thinking when I got married? Paul is saying, just stay with where you're at. If you drop down to the bottom there in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Paul is restating what he said back in chapter 6, verse 20, when he was talking about the fact that we as believers, when we become believers, the Holy Spirit enters us, Christ takes residence, he says, in fact, your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, for you were bought with a price. That price is what? The price of Jesus on the cross. He died for you. How can anything else in your life be so horrible that you cannot be obedient to your calling, if that's the case? And he says it again here. We cannot spend our days lamenting our situation. In fact, this should give us the power, the confidence, the trust in our sovereign God to turn and ask him, all right, that if this is going to be my lot in life, if this is what you've called me to, how can I make progress from here? What should I do to serve you? He continues there and he says, um, so, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I'm sure that didn't come across easy. If you're listening to this this morning, either online or in here, you might be thinking, well, if you just knew the circumstances, you would know how unhappy I am. 
and I've thought about so many times just getting out, moving, uh, doing something different. See, we're, we're forgetting that we have a God who knows, who knows. And he can give us the strength to do anything. He can take where we're at and he can change it, 180. Just like he did your personal life, so can he do that in your relationships. It's an amazing thing. There remain with God. And I just want to address one thing in this section of the letter. Often people who are critical of Christianity, I've heard it many times, will come along and say, well, Christians uh, believe in slavery. That's because the Bible commands it. And they'll turn to a passage like this in 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul's saying, if you're in bondage, stay in bondage. That's not what Paul is trying to say. He's just re being real. There's not much he can do about it. The church couldn't do a whole lot about freeing you from a situation uh, if you were happened to be in bondage to someone else. But he says, in parenthetical thought there, uh, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That's what the entire book of Philemon is about, right? Onesimus, the runaway slave, has come to Paul as a believer and said, what do I do with my situation? And Paul says to him, hang in there. You know, and he writes a letter for him back to Philemon saying, brother, who, Philemon was also a believer, if it's in your heart, do this. And then he kind of plays some wordsmithing there and says, you owe me a lot, Philemon. So I'm asking you, as a man who played a huge spiritual role in your life, let's think about freeing Onesimus. And most people believe that Onesimus eventually got his liberty and he became a great leader in the church. But the church does not promote slavery, not in the least. So when Paul is saying, uh, let each person live the life that God has called him to, he's just saying, whether it's temporary or permanent, wherever you find yourself, however difficult it is, search God. Ask him in prayer, what should I be doing with my life right now? If God wants it to change, it will change. All right, let's, we've got to keep on mushing here. Uh, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, uh, I have no command from the Lord. Again, Paul is emphasizing this is not a direct command from Jesus. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, and then he's going to go on till the end of the chapter talking about how those who are engaged, those who are uh, thinking about marriage probably shouldn't get married. And his whole rationale is one that is really focused on eschatology. It's an apocalyptic viewpoint. He believed, as did most of the apostles, that Jesus was imminently returning in the second coming. And so this is kind of Paul's uh, Olivet Discourse. If you're familiar with Jesus preaching on uh, the Mount of Olives and at the end of his ministry days and in Matthew 24, and he's telling the people, these are the things that are going to be coming. These are the things that are going to be happening. Uh, and therefore normal life should change a little bit. And I'm just going to read a section to you there. So when you see the abomination, these are the words of Jesus, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. 
Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation. So Jesus is saying, when that second advent comes, it's going to be a day of judgment. It's not going to be a fun time. Now, I don't know, since we don't know when that time and date is, that we can necessarily uh, try to plot out whether we should have children or not by that admonition. But I think he's just saying, use wisdom. Use wisdom. And Paul is saying the same thing here. He's very concerned about the times. Uh, and he's thinking um, that Jesus might be coming in verse 26. It says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Uh, and he's going to say this. If you are single, that is awesome. Don't work on getting married. If you're engaged, if you can handle it, pull back from it. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And so he's just saying this, if you're married, you've got to see to the welfare of your wife and of your children and of your household. The unmarried man basically can be free to go. He can do whatever God is calling him to do. So how much better is it for the person who is single to serve the Lord than for the person that is married? He says, I say this not for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to God. Strong statements. Paul and the apostles believed because of what Jesus had said and because of the times they lived in that the Lord was getting ready to return. Jesus himself, though, says of that day and that hour, no man knows, right? Not the Son, but the Father does. My father-in-law and I, he was a pastor for years, we used to talk about when was Jesus returning. And he was under firm conviction that he wanted to live to the year 2000 because he thought Jesus was going to come back then. And I used to always say to him, well, Dad, if this is what Scripture says, that no one knows that day and hour, just by the fact that you said 2000, now you've made Scripture a lie. So now he can't come in the year 2000. You know? And once again, Dad looked at me like, why did I let you marry my daughter? Uh, things like that. But, you know, it's, it's the truth. We, how do you handle this? How do we know when times are dark? Well, I think that what Paul would say is that every day Jesus could return, right? Every day is a time of his imminent uh, return to this world. And we better be ready for it. We better live as if we won't have a tomorrow. It is our job to live our lives, and this includes whether we're married or single, widowed, divorced. We better live like Jesus could come back. And it's not just in demanding an accountability from us of how we've used his gifts, though that's part of it but it's how we've impacted the community around us for him. That's what's really important. Paul will end up this chapter and just say this down in verse 40. Yet in my judgment, the woman is happier if she remains as she is. He's talking about a woman who is freed from her marriage bonds. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. I love that little humble statement. The Corinthian church was going to have a hard time with what Paul was saying. They may not have liked it. Matter of fact, I know they didn't like it. But Paul is saying, listen, I think I have the Spirit of God. 
I'm telling you what the Spirit is telling me. Uh, would Paul have liked to have been married? Was he sacrificing that marriage for the church, for the purposes of Christ? Perhaps. But I think for each one of us, we need to be examining our hearts. If you're single, has God given you that gift of singleness? Are you using it for him? See, the purpose of life was never in the New Testament to live and to work and to accumulate, to get a healthy retirement account, to somehow survive until Medicare, to have that great house, to enjoy our grandkids. All those things are what happens in life. But the examination of our life is what Paul's trying to get to. What is God calling you to? What is God asking you to do with the status of life you find yourself in at this moment? Live that life. Remain in that status. And serve him with all that you have. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you for this chapter, which is rather long. But we know that Paul's heart is in here. That he, as a single man, looks at his Lord, who was a single man, and he says, man, it's possible, it's easier to serve Christ without family entanglements. But he also recognizes that even in marriage, we can serve you in a great way. As parents, we can serve you in a great way. Father, in whatever condition we find ourselves this morning, may we live that way faithfully, truthfully with you. Forgive us, Father, when our hearts moan, when we just betray our lack of faith in you by being uncomfortable or dissatisfied with where you have put us and help us to live for you. Father, protect us from bringing the philosophies of the world into the church. Help us, Father, to always examine what we're living and believing by your word. And may our witness not only strengthen this church, but it may it strengthen the community. May it be attractive to them so that they come to you in faith. That is our prayer. And Father, just for those marriages that are out there that are unequally yoked, I pray for the non-believing spouse, the unbelieving children, which now in some cases may be unbelieving grandchildren. And we ask, Father, for a work of grace. We humble ourselves before you. Use us, not only as the individual who may be married in that situation, but as the church who comes around that person who's in that situation and use us to be examples of grace, to be the sanctification of that family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.